Dr. J. Hamilton to examination room 15. Dr. J. Hamilton, room 15. Okay, just sign these papers, John, and we'll have you on your way. John, you dropped your pet. John? I need a trauma team now! The pain, unimaginable in hindsight, sears through your chest like a bolt of lightning, swift and severe. What will happen to me? To my children? My loved ones? How do you prepare for a future you may not be a part of? Every six minutes, somebody in America dies of a blood clot. We're here to change that statistic. Welcome to Taking a Breath, a Stop the Clot podcast. A podcast dedicated to bringing awareness of the dangers of blood clots, from the clotting disorders community to the world. With the help of many notable blood clot survivors, we are here to give you the knowledge and the skills you need to prevent this silent killer. My name is Leslie Lake. I am the president of the National Blood Clot Alliance, and I am a blood clot survivor. And my name is Todd Robertson. I am the patient engagement liaison for the National Blood Clot Alliance, and I am a six-time blood clot survivor. And we're here to stop the clot. As a parent, as a partner, or as a friend, sometimes self-advocacy takes a back seat. Finding the harmony between selfless action and self-care is paramount in doing better for yourself and for others. Our guest today is a provider, someone whose consistent care and strength as a father and as a partner echo his strength as an advocate in the fight against blood clots. As the Senior Vice President at ESPN Plus, our guest is a leader. Please join me in welcoming the gem that is John J.T. Lasker. My name is John Lasker. I am a executive at ESPN uh, for the last 24 years. I reside in Southington, Connecticut with my wife and my four daughters. I am a blood clot survivor and a member of the National Blood Clot Alliance Board of Directors. My experience, uh, it's a little fuzzy, frankly, on on sort of the, the beginning of my story. Um, because a lot of the the symptoms and a lot of my story is is a little bit in hindsight, and largely because as I think about it now, so I, I suffered um, a blood clot and pulmonary embolism. The official date that I use is uh, July twenty seventh of two thousand and twenty. Uh, that's the day I was admitted into the hospital. Uh, July of two thousand and twenty was only about uh, four or so months uh, into the pandemic. And if you sort of, if anybody sort of thinks back to that time, which isn't that long ago for a lot of us feels like uh, decades ago, it was uh, a difficult time for all of us, obviously. And the, I think the last place that people would want to find themselves is uh, within a, a community of people, but then also uh, no less in a, uh, in a hospital. And so my symptoms, I think, started in the uh, mid-June 2020 
time frame, uh, uh, right around the time I turned 45 years old, which is another sort of underlying uh, sort of theme and uh, how I was responding, you know, at least in my head to some of the symptoms that I was uh, that I was feeling. A generally a um, an active uh, an active guy and, and a healthy guy. I've been so for for most of uh, most of my life, or at least I've tried to be for most of my life. Uh, so turning 45 years old is a little bit of a a little bit of a a moment. Um, and around that time, in going to the gym and running and things like that, I've remember feeling again in hindsight feeling rather fatigued, just tired, uh, chalking that up to being 45 maybe pushing myself a little bit too much, but then also just, you know, getting another year older, you know, and again, in the back of the mind, also feeling like, Hey, maybe my experiencing COVID symptoms, things like that. But the fatigue uh, slowly led to, um, and again, these things didn't, didn't necessarily connect in my mind at the time, but in hindsight, all these things sort of, uh, connected in, in sort of progressive form. Uh, the fatigue, you know, uh, later led to in sort of mid-July timeframe uh, to me experiencing some leg pain. And the leg pain was sort of varying, you know, driving in a car uh, or sitting at a desk and just being uncomfortable, uh, very difficult to describe, but just like having to pick my leg up off of the chair to, you know, give myself some some relief, you know, having some you know, tingles in the feet, those types of things, uh, but also uh, started experiencing some uh, calf pain. As in all the materials or the research that you would do on blood clots, you would see you know, you know, calf pain being you know uh, one of those sort of early symptoms or signs. Uh, but then that also usually comes with you know swelling or redness or some discoloration in your skin. And I didn't have any of that, nor was I looking for any of that either. I was I'd never had blood clots in my mind, but I did have calf pain, and the calf pain was was pretty quickly chalked up to well, going to the gym, you know a lot. I'm running a lot. I've had calf strains before. So here it is a calf strain. So rest it, you know, heat it up, put it up, ice it, you know, don't go for a run for a couple of days, et cetera. What was different about this time was the, the calf pain, uh, didn't go away. I, I recall, you know, being really frustrated about that just persisting, but again, never put the fatigue and the leg pain, you know, together. Those are two very separate and, and different, uh, different things. Fast forward a couple of weeks uh, to now the end of July, uh, I wound up uh, going to bed for the night, laying down. Um, and w- the moment I had laid down in my bed, got a really sharp pain in my chest. Uh, it was almost like a lightning bolt. And it hurt so bad where I couldn't actually get up. I couldn't like move my body without severe pain. You literally felt like like somebody was standing over me and putting a knife um in my chest, uh, had to like roll over, uh, to get out of my bed, uh, to then get myself to, to sit up, but like every sort of slight movement, uh, hurt, didn't know what that was. Um, obviously and dealt with that for the, uh, you know, for the duration of the night and sort of telling myself a bunch of stories on what it could be, you know, gas or indigestion or maybe a broken rib somehow, or, or a strain, a muscle strain, you know, those types of things. I didn't tell anybody. Uh, my wife didn't notice that that was happening. I didn't want to like make anybody nervous. So made it through the night the, the pain actually wound up going away, which told me that like, maybe I just like did something. Maybe it was like indigestion, right? Like, so it wasn't still there. It wasn't persisting. So there, maybe that's nothing serious, you know? Uh, the next day wound up, we had plans to, uh, to hang out with friends on a, 
their lake boat uh, out here in uh, in Connecticut and spent the day, you know, doing a bunch of activities, jumping in the lake. It didn't feel great. It was, you know, I was, I felt like I was just tired. I was up all night, you know, that type of thing and spent the day with no real issues, no pain or anything like that, that I can remember. I uh, wound up getting home re- relatively late that night. And uh, my youngest of my, my four daughters uh, had fallen asleep in the car and I grabbed her to bring her up the stairs, just one flight of stairs in the house. And she's five years old, maybe 40-ish pounds, uh, so not terribly heavy um, and something I've done a hundred times before and brought her up the stairs. And when I got to the top of the stairs, I was completely out of breath. Like I had just run, you know, a hundred, you know, hundred yard sprint as fast as I possibly could. And oddly again at the time, and maybe this is my own stubbornness or the, you know, general human behavior here, but did not actually make the connection between the chest pains the night before, the fatigue, the leg, uh, the leg pain and the shortness of breath um, that I was, that I was experiencing at that point. Like it just never connected, uh, for me. I think when people experience chest pain, they think the things that I was thinking the night before or heart attack. And I don't know if heart attack, you know, and having shortness of breath, like go together. I I, I just wouldn't know, like, you know, I'm just not thinking about this stuff all the time. And the normal sort of person day to day isn't right. So it's hard to make those connections. Wound up getting my daughter into bed and, and sort of really like dealt with myself uh, alone that night, trying not to scare anybody um, in in my house about like what I was experiencing uh, because that, that shortness of breath then, then did lead to the chest pain coming back. When I laid down again, the chest pain came back. It was the same thing as the night before, but then it was worse. That's when I started to worry. I started, I remember s- sitting up on my bed in the most comfortable with my feet on the floor and most comfortable spot I could find. And with my phone in my right hand, like Googling like heart attack symptoms and, and things like that, trying to self-diagnose, um, if you will, somehow. And there's some dark spots here that are really hard to recall. Uh, but I made it through that night without doing anything. I didn't call 911 or ask my wife to take me to the hospital. This is a muscle strain or this is just agita and I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm going to come home with COVID and that's a disaster. That was the mindset. Um, unfortunately blessed and lucky to have made it through that night. Cause, um, what ultimately happened, happened fast forward. The reason I was having that, that pain is the blood clot that I wound up figuring out that I had, um, had made its way into my lungs. And the multiple PEs that I had, one of them was an infarct. So it was, it was completely blocking uh, a vein in the left side of my lungs, which was, you know, cutting off blood supply to a part of my lung, uh, which was then causing the pain, which I, it, it, there's a lot of things in here that I call lifesavers uh, for me. I actually think that, that that severe chest pain I felt, although I, you can say in hindsight that I ignored it for two days, wound up saving my life because I don't know if I... I would have made it far enough to then call the doctor the next morning and say like, Hey, which is what I did. I called my doctor, my primary care physician, who's been my doctor for you know 20 years. He wound up being on vacation. So I didn't get to speak to him. Um, they send me to a primary care that's, that's, you know, covering. I talked to that nurse over the phone and I just explained to her my symptoms and she sort of stopped me in the middle of my, my description and said, you need to get to the hospital. 
And that, that's a, um, that was hard to hear. It was like, it was like as shocking as like the chest pain was like, that was a lightning bolt. That was like, wait a minute, what do you mean? I have to go to the hospital. Like, I, I don't want to go to the hospital. And she was just like, you have to go. It quickly then shifts to wait, like I'm, I'm might be in trouble here. There's something wrong maybe with me. And those things then come in play as well, but just from a different angle, it's like, I can't have something wrong with me. My family needs me. Like I need to be here. Like all those things sort of quickly go through your mind. So again, it being COVID, what I wound up doing is just driving myself to the hospital. And I remember walking into the emergency room and there was nobody there. And I mean, there was doc, there was a nurse waiting to, you know, that's patients. But my, my experience in emergency rooms you know, throughout my entire life, and I've been to them a couple times, you know, um, is they're packed, right? With people like wanting to get, you know, whatever's going on. It's just, it's always, it's like, oh, you go to the emergency room, you have to wait three hours to even see a doctor and those types of things. Just, I walked right up to the, uh, to the woman and explained to her my situation. And they, they brought a, a chair out for me immediately and grabbed me and like whisked me right into the um, right into the hospital, uh, got me a room immediately. I remember just still being confused, like, and it being, uh, it still felt overly preventative to me, but it still felt like this can't be serious. You know, this, they're gonna send me home. Like there's nothing wrong here. I have a cold. Maybe I actually have COVID, right? And the tests didn't come back, right? Like it didn't it didn't feel as serious. And by the way, this I think through my whole experience into the moment I actually did finally walk out of the hospital, it still felt that way. It's hard to wrap your head around that happening um and how close I could have been to not being here anymore. Like I'll never know. Um and that just, it's just really hard to, to wrap your head around. So I was very, very confused and skeptical. I, I do remember, I'll never forget this, when they finally got me into the room and the, the, um, the emergency room doctor came in, he was incredible. He had the, the, some, some of the best bedside manner that I've ever experienced from an emergency room doctor in particular, ever. He walked in and he pulled the chair right up to me and he held his hand up, you know, with his five fingers. He goes, hey, look, this could be one of five things. And he rifled through the five things. The last thing he said was, it could be a blood clot. But he's, I, and I, rem- I do remember this as well. He said, maybe it's a 5% chance. He's like, you don't, you don't fit the, he said something to the degree of like, you don't fit the, uh, whatever the preconditions would be for, for a blood clot. But he was like, but I promise you, we're going to knock all five of these things down and one of them is going to be left and we're going to get to the bottom of what's happening to you. It felt comforting. It was, it was like, I felt like I was in awesome hands. This guy has got me, right? He was like locked in. I also do remember, it's just interesting, like one of the symptoms that wasn't clear to the doctors at the point that they had me hooked up to all the sort of machines and the, I do remember seeing the screen that showed my heart, my resting heart rate. It was at 70 or 70 ish, 70 something. My resting heart rate is 50, but the normal resting heart rate for somebody my age is about 70. So 
there was nothing. They look and see that number 70 and have no context to me as an individual and what my actual resting heart rate is. And to actually suggest that his resting heart rate is up to, is up 20, 30, 40% right now, where otherwise it looks really normal. So that's another, like, just there's so many things that are like blurry to me. There's also things that are really clear in sort of my memory of, of going through this sort of chaotic moment. And that was certainly one of them. Uh, the testing was long. It's one of those blurry parts of my story, but they, you know, they did the x-rays, uh, they were taking blood, they were doing CT scans, a ultrasound on my legs, which is when they found the, the blood clot. And the, the blood clot that they found it wound up being a DVT that, that ran uh, from like the back of my knee down to my ankle. So rather large one in my right leg and they then they they also then you know found the uh the embolisms in my chest and they quickly put me on uh, a heparin drip you know to help uh effectively clear the uh, clear the clots and this is where the the sort of story gets scary i think and not that it wasn't scary to begin with but get this is where i think this is what sort of led me to be like to do the things that i'm doing now and to wind up being in this uh this 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 pursuit of, of, uh, of advocacy is as great as the doctor was and the, all the support staff and the nurses and everything were is the protocol, at least as they understood it was get him on a heparin drip for a couple of hours and we're going to send him on his way. And that, that could have been fine. I, I, I don't know. Um, but again, like thinking about things that are, that, that are just moments where, you know, uh, I feel like my life was saved is they give me the diagnosis. They tell me what happened. Again, I don't know, really understand how serious or not any of it was. I'm going to put you on a heparin drip. We're going to hang out with you for a little bit, but then we're going to check you out. Uh, you can go home today. Great. I call my wife, Denise. She makes the trip to, you know, to come and get me and sign me out of the hospital She's in the room uh, there with me, literally doing the paperwork. I'm still in the bed, uh, but we're doing the paperwork to uh, to get me out of there. And the lightning bolt strikes again, ten times more than it was the night before. Um, and it just it just hits me like a ton of bricks, and where I'm I'm like fall, almost falling out of the the hospital bed. And they put me on morphine, which was you know um, was in, in, incredibly helpful. <laughs> I mean, from a, a timing perspective, like, I don't know, like, if I checked out of the hospital five minutes before and was in the car with my wife and that chest pain, I, I don't know what would have happened. But I, I like to think that, that that timing was pretty damn lucky for me. Uh, and and so so they wound up admitting me. They kept me on the heparin for a couple of days. Again, it's COVID. I was in a hospital room in complete isolation and had to wonder for three days, like what really happened to me and why um, not really seeing much nurses. The doctors are coming and checking like once or twice a day and can't really have any visitors. Um, and that was a really uh, isolating, um, uh, isolating moment, you know, for me, but where I was able to do a lot of, um, a lot of reflection and, and start to understand, you know, the sort of severity of, of what had just happened to me and, and 
especially that moment of where I almost left the hospital, like to think that 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 was even possible um, was was pretty jarring um, and led me, you know, on on the way to to try to try to sort of advocate for and share, you know, the the, the story that um, you know that I have. The other sort of silver lining as I try to find these silver linings in the experience, right? Of like, what's the good that comes out of this? And, you know, discovering that I had this genetic blood disorder or factor five Leiden, I think is, um, for my family is an incredible, uh, discovery, right? So I've I've mentioned that at the father of four, four daughters, um, anybody that's paying attention knows that females are at high risk for blood clots. And there's, there's, you know, horrifying stories of young women uh dying you know because of blood clots and to know that that that's a gene that's carried in my family um and one that i can uh prepare my family and particularly the females in my family for it's all worth it you know um at the end of the day so uh so trying to find the silver lining in these things and and you know that that alone of just factor five light in and like the connectivity between that and and uh in particular females that suffer blood clots like why why wouldn't doctors just be testing for that at the appropriate time in their in their lives you know and why why do we get to a point of having these these horrible tragedy tragedies happen when they just don't have to um all for a simple blood test that could save hundreds of thousands of lives When the sudden onslaught of unknown symptoms strikes, our access to internet diagnoses provides temporary reassurance as well as further anxiety. It could be this thing, but it can also be these 200 other things. Is it a rash? Is it heartburn? Could it be cancer? Though self-discovery and advocacy helps whittle down potential ailments, blood clots often disguise themselves symptomatically as other issues. With us to discuss the concept of the great mimicker and symptoms of pulmonary embolisms, here is Dr. Elliot Hout. So the idea of the great mimicker is that, um, you know, symptoms of these blood clots can be very, very similar to other things. So let's talk about pulmonary embolism. You know, we think of what, what are some of the symptoms of a pulmonary embolism? you might have chest pain. Blood clots are not the only thing that causes chest pain. So if you show up in the emergency department and say, I have chest pain, they're going to think, oh, you have a heart attack, right? There's other things that cause chest pain and pulmonary embolism is just one of those. So you might have a heart attack. You might have, you might have fallen and broken ribs. You might have an aortic dissection. You might have lots and lots of different things that cause chest pain. It is not like a very specific symptom. You might have a cough. Why do you have a cough? Well, yes, you might have a pulmonary embolism, but you could have pneumonia. You could have lots of things that cause you to have a cough. You know, some of the symptoms might be tachycardia. So what's that? That's your heart is racing. Your heart is beating really, really fast. Why might you have that? For a lot of different reasons. They might be related to your heart. You might have an infection. You might have other things. It also could be a blood clot. Same thing for low oxygen level. You know, 
um, when COVID came, everybody went out and bought their pulse oximeter and they, you know, put it on their finger when they were worried how sick they were. And it told you your oxygen level. You know, we used to only have those in hospitals. Now you can just go buy one and use it every day. Why might your oxygen level be low? Yes, you might absolutely have COVID, but you could also have a pulmonary embolism. There's lots and lots of these things. It's not so specific that you can diagnose it by just one or two simple symptoms because those things have, you know, we call it a broad differential diagnosis. You might have one of these 10 things and we'll do some testing to figure out which of the 10 things you have. question to ask you, which is something that I experienced. And I'm, I'm wondering if you actually went through the same thing, which was, so like when I was first diagnosed and I'm like in the ICU and I'm on my phone and I'm like trying to figure out what's a blood clot and what's a pulmonary, blah, blah, blah. And I found that initially the more educated, educated, I'll use that word lightly, the more knowledgeable I became about um, this disorder, um, the higher my anxiety went because I feel like it really, I was starting to put the pieces together together to understand how close I came to not being here. Did you experience that also? I did. Um, I, I don't remember the feverish like Googling, but I'm sure I was doing it. I don't know what else I would be doing <laughs> sitting in the ICU there. Like just, I, I know I wasn't just hanging out watching, watching TV. I do recall though that like the the more knowledgeable I was getting about this, the yes, the more scared I was, but like the more alone I felt because everything that was available didn't really have like an answer, especially like there was no like, oh, and this is what you do about it. Like it's, and I, I, I'm not picking on any other diseases here, but like something like cancer, it's serious, but there's there's sort of a path, right? There's like, this is how you attack it, right? And the chances of you winning are this. And you go to this doctor, you do this treatment, and there's an end, right? You can make it through. There's sun on the other side. I never felt like there was sun on the other side of this. Um, and that, and maybe that's that was let that's less physical and more of a of a, a mental challenge. And I've said this before. I, I still I still sort of deal with that today. Sure. I mean, I think I think we all do. How did you ultimately like deal with it though? Did you go to a therapist? Did you did exercising help? Like, how did you actually process all of this, knowing that it doesn't go away a hundred percent? I, in finding you, Leslie, and finding the NBCA, like that became my safe space, right? Of being knowing, like, okay, the doctors aren't going to have all of the answers for you, but you could you could be part of a solution here to find answers not just for yourself but but actually use what happened to you and sort of get to this um address this from a larger purpose perspective um which gives gives it all purpose at the end of the day right and like helps alleviate some of the personal sort of stress and anxiety of it all um the other thing that that you know i i just this is the thing that i just sort of have confidence in for myself is, or I, I try to find confidence in is I do believe that being physically healthy at the time that this happened to me um, and being strong at the time this happened to me, I think made me very resilient to what happened to me. And 
again, may have been something that helped save my life and get me through it. So I tend to, since that point, tend to sort of overemphasize on like staying healthy. Like I can't control, I can do everything I can, but I can't control that another blood clot is going to happen to me because I don't know how I got the first one. But when it does, damn it, I'm going to be in the best possible condition that I can to make sure that it doesn't take me down. And that's sort of how I try to get through my, my day. That's a great, it's a great point. I'm sure it did play um, a very important role in, in your survival. Um, you, you mentioned the hematologist that you went to. It's funny because I listened to your story. He will not be named. I won't name. There's so many similarities between what we experienced. I like laughed when uh, I listened to you because I was like, oh my God, this is unfortunately very, very common. So if you were talking to a new patient, what would you say to them about the importance of having a team around you to help you? And if you don't feel comfortable with your team, what would you recommend to them? I mean, I would go to a thousand hematologists until I found one that I can trust. I I personally was lucky again to have you, Leslie, who introduced me to... if I can name her, Dr. Rozovsky, who didn't have the answers. She couldn't tell me what happened, why. She couldn't tell me why. And, and that's, that was the question I wanted to have answered. That was the question I thought I should be demanding um, from everybody. And that's the mission I thought I should have been on in, in terms of going down the line of hematologists, but finding somebody that did the work on your behalf um, and that you trust has done the work, um, and you know, had a more part had a partnership sort of approach to the situation, not just just listen to me because I'm I'm the doctor. Um, made all makes all the difference in the world, and and having that sort of a relationship with the team around you, the team around you is there to support you, like you're not there to service the doctor's needs. Uh, or the team's needs, the team that you're developing um, is there to help you through it. So, you know, when people talk about advocacy, like that, that's what advocacy is, is like, make sure you have the people that you trust, that you believe are, are doing everything they can to help you get to the place that you can be your best um, and not have this particular situation destroy your life. Um, cause it very well could be, could from a mental, but you could get through it physically, but mentally it could destroy you. Um, there's no doubt about it. Um, so that, that's, that's the approach I would take. That's the one I've tried to take. Yeah. I mean, having, having somebody as your partner, um, you know, uh, a physician who's your partner in this, I think is really critical to, um, to your patient's success long-term. And Leslie, can I, can I mention something else? Like the, the other thing that the doctors aside, like, again, I just cannot stress enough, you know, finding people and a community of people that have gone through this. Um, and nobody's situation is the same. That's a hundred percent true. Um, it took the stress I'm down so many levels for me. Um, you know, finding people that were able to tell me like, yeah, me too. Um, and yeah, that sounds familiar. And yeah, I don't know either. Um, but I know somebody that can, or why don't you talk to this person who 
it, it, it's it's indescribable in its value um, in in getting yourself through a situation like this. Um, and the MBCA particularly offers a lot of those uh, those forums and communities for folks to you know, to find their way to, um, which is massively valuable. Thank you. Well said. JT, I just want to thank you for joining us today on Taking a Breath. Your story is amazing and uh, sharing it with so many people that will be listening in, will it will save lives of that, I am sure. Leslie, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be on the, the show uh, and honored to share my story and looking forward to saving lives with you in the National Blood Clot Alliance. When it comes to personal advocacy, the most imperative step is listening to your body. When you feel something is wrong, follow your instinct in seeking professional advice. Smiling through painful, gritted teeth, waiting for it to go away, could be the difference between a future fulfilled and one cut short. We want to thank JT for sharing his story with us today, and to thank you for joining us here on Taking a Breath. A special thank you to Dr. Elliot Hout from Johns Hopkins for sharing his endlessly useful insight into all things clotting. For more information on risk, prevention, and community, please visit stoptheclot.org. We know the patient because we are the patient. Together with listeners like you, we can collectively stop the clot. Another Everything Podcast production. Visit everythingpodcast.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast.